Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Mark, fantastic to have you along on the podcast today. Perhaps just to get started, tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Thanks for having me, Richard. So I am currently the Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of Quickstep Holdings Limited, an ASX-listed aerospace business. Fantastic. And you've been in that role for you know quite some time, eh? going on six and a half years. Yes. Well, just over six years. So I joined at the back end of May 2017. <clears throat> I'd like to think that you can kind of discount three of those years because <laughs> they, they were heavily pandemic affected and I hadn't quite planned for a black swan event when I took the role but yeah no quite quite a long time it's been it's been it's been a fun journey so far with a lot more to come oh that's excellent and for those people who are unfamiliar with quick step tell us a little bit about the business yeah look so I'm trying to avoid a history lesson but founded by a family founder inventor owner back in 2001 in Perth listed in 2005 as a really is a technology company to commercialize some proprietary manufacturing process technology that they had developed, which we still have, and now, in fact, use extensively in drone manufacturing. But around 2010, 2011, we won some positions on some defense aerospace contracts, which required the business to turn into more of a broad engineering and manufacturing company. So the last decade or so, that's what we did. We we took over about a quarter of the site at Bankstown, which was just prior a Boeing facility and was closing. So we built out that manufacturing capability from, I think, all of 12 people to now there's 265 people on that site, which is also our head office, but very much focused on defense, aerospace, aerostructures made out of composites. Mm-hmm. And we've been very successful in that regard. More recently, and since I joined, we we went through quite a significant reconfiguration of the business. When I joined in 2017, it was heavily loss-making, had never made a profit, had never generated positive operating cash flow. So we we made, you know, some some logical changes, but also embarked on a diversification path as well. That that defense aerospace was not the bill and end all. And and even though there is large defense expenditure in Australia, all of our customers are offshore. So mm-hmm. we wanted a better balance with domestic opportunities as well as new and exciting segments. So just prior to the, the pandemic starting, we embarked on a process of acquiring an aerospace aftermarket business, maintenance, repair and overhaul business down in Melbourne Airport from Boeing. We completed the acquisition in the thick of COVID, which, you know, was it the best time to do it? In my view, yes. Was the risk profile worse than we anticipated? Also, yes. But we got a great asset and a great team for a very low cost. The, the alternative was Boeing, we're going to close the site. The journey through COVID, as we all know, was longer and deeper than we had anticipated. So that business has had some has had some challenges over the last 12 or 18 months. But it, in fact, just, just this week, we, we made another announcement of a new customer to that business. So... 
we've renegotiated some contracts and we've, we're acquiring new customers all the time. And I expect that business over the next three to five years is going to be, it's unique in Australia now. It's unique in the Australasian market as well. But the opportunity to grow in that space is, is huge. And it's domestic and aviation is healthy and bouncing back from the pandemic. And it's local and your customers are here. So unlike the manufacturing business, our customers for that business are here. And then the final piece, about 18 months ago, well, maybe a little less, actually, we launched a a new line of business that was, we'd always, always done some industrial products for automotive and other transportation sectors, medical devices, but really we pivoted that that team and that business down in Geelong toward the, the drones, commercial drones segment. So this isn't the DJI drones that you get for Christmas. Mm-hmm. This is sophisticated commercial drones made by, you know, dedicated and focused engineering businesses, usually startups, but not always. For anything in, in the kind of 25 kilo and above weight range, the, co- the most recent contract we won was actually for a 16 meter wingspan aircraft that can fly two and a half thousand kilometers with a 350 kilo payload. It's, it's a very large aircraft, unmanned, wow. autonomous. Mm-hmm. Now that, that segment is not well understood in Australia. But again, unfortunately, some of our customers are here and we've taken equity positions in a couple of Australian businesses that we think are going to be successful. But most of the customers for that business will be in the Northern Hemisphere. And, and you know, when you, when you engage with investors or customers or operators in, in the US and, and Europe, that it's, it's a known fact or it's, it's the received wisdom that commercial drones in, in a thousand different use cases are going to be huge and we're really carving out an exciting niche in that market. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just on a family holiday and with some friends and a couple that were with us. One is a very, very senior executive in Boeing and another one and her husband is a very senior executive in the defence industry and they were talking about somebody that they knew. We were in New Zealand skiing and they were talking about somebody they knew who had taken their drone business to New Zealand because the the sort of requirements or hoops that they had to jump through in terms of testing these aircraft and so on in New Zealand were were much easier than than here in Australia. The other thing I was I remember listening to a podcast with Elon Musk and he was talking about drones never really going to be working in the passenger space because of they being so noisy. But then I read an article recently, somebody's invented some propellers for them, which are dramatically quieter. So it seems like there's a lot going on in that industry. Yeah, there's there's loads. I mean, we, we very deliberately avoided the moving people around space. We, we, we do believe that that will become a significant market, but the regulatory hurdles in that market are huge. Mm. You know, it's not quite as simple as just replacing helicopters with those things you've got to take the pilot out you ultimately want them to be autonomous to realize the full benefit so we've very specifically focused on data capture so scanning large areas with sophisticated surveillance equipment for government agricultural energy companies you know there's 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 many many use cases And, and then cargo and particularly moving smaller cargoes very rapidly at low, so high value cargo, but at low cost and high mm. frequency, or as I just described, the, the the larger airline operating with companies like DHL or Hellerman to to provide 
delivery services to unserved or underserved locations. Mm-hmm. And, and your point about the regulatory environment, it's challenging in Australia. I mean, it's challenging all over the world, but it's particularly challenging here. But it's really frustrating because because this country is almost designed for the use of drones, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sparsely populated in, in the vast majority of the landmass, but people live everywhere and they want and they need access to goods and services. The the, the utility companies or, or border force they have vast areas to to monitor, all of which is done far far more efficiently and ironically a lot safer than using manned aircraft. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to change. I think the northern you know Australia is more of an adopter market than it is a pioneer market in in this space. But the the speed with which the US and European regulators are moving, it will drag everyone along with them. So, you know, I think over the next couple of years, that is going to change. Mm. Well, let's, uh, we could talk about drones for hours, but why don't we just do a little bit of a quick trip through your career history, Mark. Uh, Certainly, obviously, from your accent, Australia was not your home where you were born. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and, you know, your early life and, and talk us through your career. Sure. So, born and raised in Manchester, about four miles away from Old Trafford. So I, I, I was a Manchester United fan and had very little choice about it. <laughs> and went to university in, in Hall of City on the east coast of England, did politics and economics degree. What was really, when I left university, really wanted to work for, in, in the manufacturing space. You know, I, I, I have a really strong view that engineering and manufacturing is an, a critical component of a healthy economy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in the Western world, particularly the the period of deindustrialization, you know, that it's become a bit of a dying breed, right? That engineering and manufacturing, you've kind of got to fight for. And I, I was fortunate to grow up in the Northwest of England where aerospace is a huge industry, big employer, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people just in the Northwest of England work in the aerospace supply chain. I got a job with British aerospace and, and, and really benefited from having one or two key mentors early in my early in my time there, and also worked for a company that really valued investing in people. So, yeah, I joined the graduate development scheme. Well, I came off that quite quickly into you know, specific roles, and then yeah, worked through commercial into sales into business development and then program management, and had a lot of opportunity to work internationally. So, mm-hmm. lived and worked in France for a year. Lived and worked in the US for a year. And then, yeah, you progressively move through a series of ever senior roles, as the phrase goes. And I ended up then moving to the Middle East for a couple of years to run a part of the the BAE business there, and then moved to Southeast Asia. I had, whilst in the UK, met my now wife, who's Australian. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't completely random that we ended up in Australia. In fact, I'm sure that was her scheme all along, but... uh, We'll skip over that. And then when I was in, in in Malaysia running the the Southeast Asian business for for British Aerospace, I was headhunted by Honeywell and spent four and a half years running a Honeywell business in Asia Pacific. During which time we self relocated to to Australia, which made sense for us personally. And when you're running an Asian business, you know as long as you're in Asia, then then that's okay. And and Australia, I stress, is in Asia, even though not everyone would like to admit that. Uh, but it's a very dynamic economy to be a part of. And then having been here for a couple of years, I got another call about about this job. You know, and I, and I was thinking about next moves and 
And, and sadly, in Australia, there, there are very few of these kinds of roles because the industry sector is relatively small. And certainly the non-foreign-owned industry sector is very small. So when an opportunity like this comes up, although the business back in 2016-17 was not in great shape, it, it did not take long or much due diligence to work out that there was the people were great, the potential for the business was huge, it just needed, you know, a, a slightly stronger degree of commerciality in the way it was run and a bit more focus. And, you know, we, we, I think we achieved that. And notwithstanding the, the negative impacts of COVID, the business today is, is phenomenally stronger than it was when I joined. Mm-hmm. And, and we've been able to really leverage the capability and competency of the people. But that, that's me, I, you know, all my career in aerospace and defence, commercial and, and military. And so going back, you'd said it earlier in the conversation that initially, or when you joined Quickstep, the business was facing challenging times. So it was part of your due diligence that you were able to see the under, underlying value and, and, and believe sufficiently enough in the future of the organisation to take the opportunity on. Yeah, so I obviously spent quite a bit of time through the recruitment process with the board. And, you know, you were able to dig a little deeper into, you know, what was really going on. But I also took the opportunity to speak to people in the industry that I knew who who knew of the business. And I kind of got the same feedback all the time. And, and, it, and it resonated with what I was seeing, which was a business that had had massive potential, but really needed just just more clarity. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and to move out of that, that kind of, tech spending money shareholders money like it's water phase mm-hmm. into something that was what what would look and feel to most people a real business run for profit and, and in lots of those circumstances once you get in the door things end up being a little bit worse than you'd expected and in other respects a little bit better than you'd hoped for mm-hmm. i mean particularly the people right so back then we had maybe 140 people but Really quickly, I was able to work out that in all of my career, pound for pound, those the, the people I was working with were as good or better than most I had worked with in in Asia, North America, and and Europe. Because I, I often cite this actually that in Australia the tyranny of distance is a real thing, but the flip side of the tyranny of distance is actually quite a positive, which is incredible resourcefulness and, and ingenuity and creativity because you can't just reach out across the English channel to that great supplier in France or mm-hmm. to the to the next door state to a to a really good engineering team in, in, in an adjacent state. You you've got to knock through things yourselves and and that drives a level of competency and and in some respects frugality as well. You know, doing things on on relatively modest budgets that is actually quite compelling in the international aerospace environment. You know, our team does things faster, better, and cheaper than most of the teams that I've worked with previously. So to answer your question, a lot of it was as I expected. Some of it was worse. A lot of it was better. But really, we only made, I only made about four or five key changes in the first six months. And up until we were smashed by COVID last year, we were profitable, either statutory or, or as a minimum, an underlying level in every half thereafter. Mm-hmm. So the first six months were, you know, you, you're cleaning out a lot of the, the dirty laundry and, and it was hard because restructuring is far from free. <laughs> but then from month seven onwards, 
we 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 moved quite quickly to positive operating cash flow, and we moved quite quickly to consistent profitability, and that allowed us then to 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 have the the capital to start looking at a more serious diversification strategy. Mm. It sounds quite counterintuitive in that when a business typically isn't trading well, it's hard to maintain good culture and, and retention. And yet in this instance, even the business wasn't trading well, you know, you the quality and of people was very high. Do you think some of that comes back to your comment earlier about there isn't a lot of opportunity for these kind of people in Australia? So we're here in this organisation, you know, we don't have a lot of choice, so therefore we're going to hang around and see it through. Yeah, look, I think that's, I think you've hit the nail on the head, actually. I, I think there's quite a lot of people in Australia who would love to work in aerospace, and there are very few options. Mm-hmm. I think, <clears throat> and, and that's what we see, that we have, I mean, I think now is a really good, a really good time to, to, to see the real tangible visibility of that, which is, we have a very high attrition rate, twenty percent. You know, it's not; it's unusually high by historical standards. It's not particularly high by today's standards. But if you actually break down the data, which we've done, we have a really high attrition rate in those under twelve months. Mm-hmm. But we have actually a very good retention rate in the in the the core workforce. Mm-hmm. And and I think part of that is. There are very few opportunities. If you want to work in aerospace, we're one of the few where you can. We're also a really broad business, so you've got lots of opportunities to get involved in lots of different and interesting things. But we've only got a relatively small headcount, so you tend to get more empowerment, more responsibility at an earlier stage. Now, it needs the right candidate, right? Because it's not an easy place to work. But if you if you like if you like aerospace, if you like early stage responsibility, if you like feeling empowered and being accountable, we've got an incredible value proposition. It's not right for some people, which is why I think we have some, you know, a disproportionately higher attrition rate in those under 12 months. And, and I, I get frustrated because maybe we're not hiring particularly well if we do have that high attrition rate in the early stage. But I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that it thrills me that we've got a really low attrition rate mm. With that, with that core workforce, and particularly in times like the last twelve months, when yeah, you know, we're publicly traded, so a lot of this is is public record. But we've been through a tough period, right? You know, we had massive absenteeism, huge supply chain challenges, you know, some equipment issues. We, have, we lost a week to flooding. You know, there was, there was a whole range of different things. But yeah, we're through that now, and and I have a lot more conversations about about how people on the team feel about each other when they look across the desk at each other <clears throat> excuse me having been through that period mm. you know you either jump off the bus as fast as you can or you stay on it and and you know the the, the core workforce stayed on it and and demonstrated incredible resilience teamwork camaraderie and you know i think i think in teams in in the future we'll look back on that period with a degree of pride it was hard but also you know not only did we get through it but we got through it and and we've got a really positive outlook ahead for the, for the coming financial year and beyond. Yeah, so I mean, I think you're certainly not Robinson Crusoe in that there were a, sort of a, a broad variety of challenges through that pandemic period, and and I think that one of the natural outcomes of that was 
you know, a difficulty in retaining, you know, particularly early stage employees because the, the market was just being flooded by opportunity and, and people get, you know, distracted by the shiny new toy and, and go off and chase new things. But it sounds also as if you, unlike many organizations, were able to continue to invest in retaining those people through that period, whereas a lot of other companies just made a decision like, times are tough, let's get rid of a stack of people. Oh, suddenly they're better again and finding them almost impossible to re-employ. But you obviously took the stance that we're going to hang on to these people and just write it out. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in many respects, we kind of doubled down on the investment in people piece during COVID. So we we invested in and launched the Quick Step Learning Academy. So permanent classroom and practical setup with full-time trainers. And look, in many respects, that was it was designed to be productivity enhancing, to move away from just purely on the job training. But it was also reflective of what new employees expect from their employer. They, they sure, empowerment, <clears throat> responsibility and accountability is great. But if it doesn't come with a corresponding investment in the individual through individual development plans with internal and external training, internal mentoring, external mentoring, if you don't provide all of that, then you run the risk of just setting people adrift. Yeah. So we we invested heavily in the training piece during COVID. We we came out with a new values based cultural program, the CAN culture, courageous, agile, and and all in, which you know I think sometimes can sound a little a little contrived and a little bit like you know corporate BS, but actually when you get it right, works quite well. And you know we've got reward and recognition programs on the back of that. And, and we do a lot of the celebrate small success. And, and you know, lots of people, whenever I'm hiring, you know, it's one of the most obvious and most frequent questions, you know, how would you describe your culture? And, you know, sadly, as I said, the last, the last 12 months, it's a culture of resilience and hard work, right? You don't want it to always be that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's high levels of pride, lots of discretionary effort. And, and I think there's a belief amongst the majority of the workforce, in fact, I know there is because I talk to them regularly, that we're doing something that's unique and Australian and probably not been done before. Mm. And I think for the right individual, that that's, I know it is for me personally, it's incredibly motivating. Mm. You've already spoken a bit about this in terms of what you're excited about for the future, but, you know, sitting here now, halfway through 2023, what what is... Where do you see the organisation going in, say, the next three to five years? So, look, we've, we've got a very clear strategic plan that the board signed off on late last year. And, and, and in fact, I think that in itself speaks volumes. The board signed off on a strategic plan, five-year strategic plan that is very ambitious in the midst of all of the COVID challenges we suffered last year. So that, that was a real vote of confidence in the business. We've got the three segments that I described before. For aero structures, the, the, the defence market in Australia, tough market as it is, does have a significant growth opportunity within it. So I expect to see the business out of Bankstown continue to develop and, and, and grow in that environment. The aftermarket business down at Melbourne Airport, you know, we've got through a tough period, but the customer commitments that we're getting now and the uniqueness of that offering I think the next three to five years for that business are are really quite exciting, both in Australia and the wider region. Now we've got the settings right, the customer settings particularly. The drones piece, yeah, look, I mean, 
it's a very hubristic market at the moment where we're all going to have everything delivered by drones. You know, I think a lot of things are overblown, but we've not even dreamt up half of the use cases for these things. I guess the overlay to, to that business, though, is we will shortly make an announcement to the market about our expansion plans in the U.S., and for that business particularly, that is vital to its future growth. But I think for all parts of the business, you know, most of our customers today are in the US. We mm-hmm. just service them as an export market. Our physical presence in the US in terms of having an engineering and manufacturing site is going to be a defining feature of our growth over the next three to five years across the board, but very specifically in, that, in, in the new air mobility sector. So, yeah, look, I think we've got some exciting growth opportunities in Australia, particularly given how healthy aviation is is rebounding. Uh, and, and in the US, both on the commercial and the defense side, I think we're just entering a new era with, you know, AUKUS and the ever-growing relationship between US and Australia politically and within the industrial base. I think there's going to be there's a lot of opportunity for a business like ours in the US. There's a lot of mediocrity in the supply chain in the US. And we are typically the best supplier on the programs we we are contracted to. And that's not a coincidence. You know, we're good and we're way better than the mean from my significant experience in the US market. There's a lot of very poor suppliers who succeed because the market's so vast. Well, it's certainly a tremendous accomplishment for an Australian company to be you know, taking aerospace into the US. Uh, I think that must be a very rare situation. It, look, it, it isn't, it isn't, right? And, and probably, I, I don't think there's a perfect correlation for our story, but but there are businesses like that I have real admiration for, right? Like, like Hostel in ships, right? Mm-hmm. They took their technology into the States and have been phenomenally successful. Like Vizzy, is it, you know, the packaging guys and, and sure. how successful they're being in the state? I mean, you know, who would have thought that you could be better at something as humdrum as that than, mm. than, 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 than Americans? Well, you can be, right? You know, one of my other favorites is a company called Futurist that, that used to design automotive interiors and saw the demise of the auto sector here and expanded internationally. Now, sadly, they've, you know, after a couple of private equity transactions, they're no longer in Australia, but still a great example of engineering competency from Australia being successful around the world. So successful indeed that they were snapped up by private equity twice in, in, in two or three years. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think one of my, one of my constant bugbears in, in Australia is the competency that exists in Australia is better than people believe it is. You know, I'm a Brit, right? We have very high opinions of ourselves not always thoroughly deserved. Whereas Australians, in my experience, tend to have quite low opinions of themselves, almost never deserved. <laughs> well, I think we, we've got the, the tall poppy syndrome here, haven't we? Which is uh, yeah. if, you, if you blow your own trumpet too loudly, somebody's going to come and, uh, and uh, chop you down. But uh, no, I understand exactly what you're saying, Mark. There's certainly you know, quite a number of our clients that we've worked with over the years uh, have been very successful in the US as well. And what about for you? You know, six years in the role, where do you see your own career going in the future? Yeah, look, another question I get asked a lot, and, and it probably sounds like a stock answer, but it but it's true in that 
yeah, for two years of COVID, we, we trod water because, you know, we couldn't leave the country. So our expansion plans in the U.S. had to be put on ice. The stock market was not friendly to us because we were in a sector that was being pummeled by, by the pandemic. And then last year, when we think we're coming out of it, you know, Australia has its COVID year. So my view would be, I've really been the CEO for three years and, and three years were kind of, you know, this parallel universe we went through. But look, there's, there's just so much more to achieve in this business. I love working here. I love doing something that's unique, different and, and never really been tried before. And frankly, if you want to stay in Australia and work in aerospace, as we talked about before, there aren't that many opportunities, right? So, yeah, when, when you think you've got the best job in the industry, you kind of, it has to be something incredible to entice me away. We get the sense that you're pretty locked and loaded for the time being. And so yes. last question before I let you get on with your day, and I do appreciate very much you taking the time. So what, what about when you're not working? What are the kind of things you like to get up to? Keep the petrol tank full. Yeah, so <clears throat> I uh, enjoy travel. I love going back to, to the UK. My, all my, my family are over in the UK. We've got two youngish kids, 13 and 10, who are, heavily into sport which is uh, which is great because both my wife and i are too it, it uh, generates some interesting conversations around the tea on the sofa or, or around the dinner table because it depends who's on the up as to which team is being supported right. i mean currently in the ashes it's it's everyone for australia apart from me right. but yeah keeping abreast of developments in you know in, in business in current affairs into you know my politics and economics degree i'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to politics, a bit of a geek when it comes to economics. But really, you know, that is what mostly influences the world around us, right? Or at least mm. the world I operate in. And and getting around and about so travel, I, I said internationally, but I mean one of the one of the few real positives for me out of COVID was I got to see a lot more of regional Australia. Mm. And honestly, it's the best part, I think. It's and because it always intrigued me why people had such a, an idealized view of the regions and regional Australia, despite hardly anyone going there, actually. But having been to a, lots of you know, regional rural parts of, of Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, you know, there's something just magical about all those places. So I, I like getting off the beaten path in, in Australia as well. And, you know, food, cinema, all the usual pastimes. <laughs> I was just earlier this year on a four-wheel drive trip up to Cape York and we were going through some very, you know, extreme four-wheel drive travel on telegraph track in these crazy places and all these people on the way, they're broken down, their their axles snapped or their radiators have blown up. And I was thinking when you were talking about your drones that can carry 350 kilos, you know, some of these guys are stuck on the side of the track for four or five days waiting for a part to come in. So that's an immediate, you know, potentially even life-saving, you know, technology. It's going to be very exciting to see how everything unfolds over the next few years. Well, Mark, I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the very best of success with Quickstep and in your own career. Thanks and have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Same to you. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.